0: This morning comes uh, from the book of Luke, and it's just one reading this morning, uh, from chapter 10, uh, verses 25 to 37, and it is already mentioned what the subject matter is going to be, and uh, it's going to be an interesting message this morning, I'm sure. Uh, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think, was neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's a reading from the word of God.
1: Thank you, Alan. Well, good morning. It's nice to see you here today. It's nice to see so many smiling eyes. I can't see smiles, but I can, I think I detect some smiling eyes uh, in there. Uh, What a wonderful uh, portion of Scripture, a famous portion of Scripture that we come to today uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, as we'll be looking at uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, as it is called. Uh, when you do what I do, uh, there is, there's some occupational hazards. I think one of the greatest occupational hazards in doing what I do uh, as a vocation is you're constantly telling people what God says, that you fail to hear and do it yourself. It's a huge, huge problem, uh, and I'm sure you probably have a bunch of different stories or names that are popping into your mind of people who did what I do uh, but were not able to be faithful and follow through with that. I read this week uh, in F. Scott Spencer's commentary uh, on this text, he, he cited uh, a study done by a couple of psychologists, a pair of psychologists, and the study was done on seminary students uh, and it was with, with, with specific reference to this text. So here was the setup. Uh, unbeknownst to them, the whole class of seminary students, if you don't know what a seminary is, it's, it's a place where they send uh, people to college to become pastors and ministry leaders and so forth. So have, they send these students, these, these future uh, shepherds, these future pastors in the church, uh, they, they assign them this text to preach. They're preaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And these two psychologists got alongside the the professor and they said, look, here's, here's the setup, here's what we're gonna do. He arranged to have someone looking very destitute to be on the way to the classroom where they were preparing to preach the message. And the way they set up the study was the student would get the call that their time has been moved up. So they need to hurry and get to class and prepare this message. And they found that only 10%, I think I'm getting this right, only 10% of those students who were assigned to be preaching the text that day stopped and assisted the person that they saw along the way. Well, we're all learning, aren't we? (laughs) They found the biggest indicator of whether the person stopped and helped the, the, the person by the side of the pathway or the road, as it were, the biggest factor of whether or not they helped was how much time pressure they were under. Those who were given a sense that they were very late were least inclined to stop. It's pretty instructive for us in Sydney. I hear the phrase thrown around a lot that we're a time-poor culture. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase, we're a time-poor Culture? Yep. Uh, The reality is there is no scarcity of time. (laughs) Everyone gets the time that they get, but there's no… You can't hoard more time than somebody else could hoard. You can't spend more time than somebody else could spend in any given day. But they found in this study that those who were feeling under the gun, under pressure, like they were running late, were the least inclined to stop and help the person, even though they were about to go into a room and talk to a bunch of people about how God says we ought to love and care for those who are in need in our path. Fascinating. I think perhaps that's why, one of the reasons why James says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers. Um, So pray for me. Uh, As we come to this text, we're in a series called The Way of Discipleship, and uh, this is because Luke's gospel is really the story of salvation. It's the story of how God's going to redeem humanity, but there's kind of three major sections. There's the section where Jesus is in Galilee. And Galilee is north of Jerusalem. It's sort of the backwaters of of God's kingdom and and his people Israel there. But Jesus did a lot of ministry there. It's where he came onto the scene. We saw that. The first section of Luke's gospel is about the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, and he's really showing that, that he is the one who's been anointed to bring salvation. In this middle section of the narrative, it's the, called the travel narrative, and it's about Jesus moving to Jerusalem. And if you were listening a few weeks ago, we talked about how in this section, there's only four miracles in the next 10 chapters, but you have something like 17 parables. It's heavy on teaching. It's lighter on the miraculous. This is because of Jesus' destination in Jerusalem, which will actually be the third section of the gospel. It's on Jesus's time in Jerusalem as he prepares to go to the cross. This section though in the narrative is all about training. And so the, the theme that I want you to just keep in mind for all of this is the way of salvation is the way of discipleship. No one's gonna be saved without being a disciple of Jesus. You won't get to heaven without learning from Jesus. We saw that last week. Those who are written in the Book of Life are only those to whom the Son has revealed God the Father. It is not public information. It must be revealed by Jesus. And here on the back of that comes a very strong ethical teaching. This section, it's all about discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Last week, we saw that disciples rejoice in the kingdom of God. There's a real sense of celebration and jubilee and, and just joy in, in understanding that God's kingdom has come, that, that his rule and reign is here, and that we can be reborn into that kingdom by his spirit. This week we're going to talk about the way of mercy or, or, or being willing to love. Um, and we'll see here today that following Jesus means putting mercy into action. Following Jesus means pers- putting mercy into action. So if the way of salvation is the way of discipleship and being a disciple means following Jesus, then the way of salvation is putting mercy into action. It's going to become a huge proof Jesus' disciples will find out today should love others without price or prejudice. There's this sense that there is no limit to the kind of love that we are to have for our neighbor. I want to give you this breakdown, this this section, and I apologize. It's probably a little bit hard to read. Um, This is from Green's commentary and I really liked his, his breakdown. The this, this verses we're looking at today, verses 25 to 37, it, it's really a two-part story, but, but it repeats the same thing. So just look with me here. We have Luke identifies the motive of the lawyer or the expert in the law. We have a motive that's stated. Then we have the expert's question, the lawyer's question. We have Jesus' answer followed by a counter question. Then we have the lawyer's response, which is affirmed, and then we have Jesus's final word, which is an imperative or a command. You could run the same framework in verses twenty-five to twenty-nine. Excuse me, twenty-five to twenty-eight, as as appears in verses twenty-nine to thirty-seven. But that's a little bit confusing. (laughs) So what we're going to see today is we're going to break it into three parts. So part A is sort of the first part, the truth. The truth about eternal life. And that eternal life is found in the way of love, verses 25 to 28. We're gonna zero in on verse 29. That, that's kind of the hinge point here. And the experts question, who is my neighbor? And that, that's, that's the trap, really. And then finally, we'll see the test. Verses 30 to 37. And that's kind of part B of that, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. But what you need to realize today is that the breadth of our love reveals the depth of our discipleship. The extent to which our love goes out is the extent to which our discipleship goes deep. Let that sit with you for just a minute. We asked a challenging question at the end of our family service. Pastor Stephen, after he gave the talk, he said, this is the question I want you to think about, and I'll be thinking about it all week. (laughs) It's, when was the last time you helped somebody without expecting anything in return? That's hard. And the second part of that question was, what did it cost you? That question gets at this reality. If our love has close borders, it's a sign that our discipleship, that our learning from Jesus is shallow. Conversely, if our love extends and it reaches through crises, through, through our own loss of time or loss of possession or our own loss of esteem, if it extends past our own family circle, past our, our church family, past our coworkers, past anyone in our life who's able to actually make our life better, well, that's a sign that our discipleship is well and truly quite deep. So. The truth, the trap, and the test. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, would you encourage us this morning as we come to the word. Lord, I confess that these words just cut. (laughs) They're so clear. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of your words and he would hone in on our hearts, that he would divide those places, get in between, Lord, in the cracks where our flesh is still reigning. Lord, we pray that we would be transformed into the image of your son who loves extravagantly. It's in his name we pray, amen. As we begin, we'll look at the truth. The truth here is that love is the path to eternal life. Love is the path to eternal life. Now, I'm not going all hippie on you, right? You might be thinking, all we need is love, right? We're gonna gonna get in a circle and sing Kumbaya. That's not what we mean, okay? Nice song, very mellow. Maybe some of you need that, but that's not what this is about, all right? Love is the way of eternal life. Now, I gotta set some context for us here because it's really important, the lack of context that Luke gives. So as we jump in, uh, I want you to follow with me as we come into verses 25 and 26. We see here that, where do we go? There we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. Now, when he introduces it this way and says, on one occasion, um, we've kind of mellowed that a little bit. We've sort of pulled it out. And I think this is why you hear the Good Samaritan story taught on its own so much. It's seldom ever taught in the context of what comes before it and what comes after it. But what comes before it is extremely important. Because if you were reading what came before it, you would have heard Jesus praising God with His hands to heaven, I imagine, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, saying, God, I praise you because you have hidden these things from the wise and the educated and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus is overflowing with joy at the ways of God whereby he obstructs the views of the experts and he allows the little kids to see into who he is. The humble in heart. And when we get to the end of the section, The words just before this, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, blessed are you, because you see, they're the little kids. Now, the very next verse, Luke says, and behold, behold, look, look, an expert stood up. And behold, an expert in the law. He would count as wise, wouldn't he? He would count as educated. And, and the sense is he's sort of overhearing this conversation. And he, see, he sees Jesus telling his disciples, blessed are you because you see. And, and he's like the kid who's been used to getting straight A's over there saying, hey, hey, why did they all get 100%? And, 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 I'm, and I'm sitting here with an 85. And he stands up and, and he says, teacher, He rises, it's a sign of respect. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Very important question. Very, very important question. This you could say is the subject of all philosophy, of all religion, is trying to answer this question. It was something that they would have talked about. It's not as if he's, you know, suddenly found gold here. This is what everybody's thinking about. It's what Jesus is talking about. And it would be great if, if he said, I just want to know. But Luke gives us his motive, and his motive is he wants to test Jesus. Now, some read this in a negative way, some read this in a neutral way. At the very least, I think we should conclude he's not being direct. He's not simply coming from the standpoint of, I just want to know, I just want to sit at your feet, Jesus, and I just want you to tell me the truth. There is something in his motive, something, where he's trying to, he's trying to sort out Jesus, where, whether he's trying to do it surreptitiously and, and, and he's, trying to, he's trying to put Jesus in a box so he doesn't have to listen to him, or whether he's trying to, to, to get Jesus to, to resolve his own tension. We're, we're not quite sure, but it's not a direct, it's not just a direct approach. It's not what we're gonna see next week. It's not Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. And you'll find out why we can say that in a minute, because he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with something right in his wheelhouse. (laughs) What is written in the law? He must've been thinking, yes, got him. What is written in the law? And how do you read it? Those are two different questions. What is written in the law says, do you know what God has said? How do you read it will say, do you understand what God has said? Jesus would on another occasion, I believe this is in John's gospel, he he would just run the Pharisees through. He would say, you search the Scriptures because you believe in having them, you have eternal life. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you have the words of God and you pour through them, but but you do not see that they testify about me. You see, there's a difference between knowing the word of God and understanding its meaning. That's what's in Jesus' two questions. The expert responds... With a great answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. In other words, with your whole being, with, with all of you, your emotions, your convictions, your passion, your volition, your will, your might, your energy, your, your affection, with your intellect. Don't, don't, don't spend too much time trying to parse out what each one of those is. It, it, it means all of you. Everything that's you, bring that in love to God. And he goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself. This is a great answer for a few reasons. This man has, has managed to come through all of God's written revelation and the commands to Moses, and he's gone to two separate places in two different books of the Torah. He's gone to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I believe it's chapter five. And he's gone to Leviticus. He's doing biblical theology, Old Testament style. And and he's worked through the whole thing and he's pulled out these two places and he said, yes, these two commands, this is it. Jesus said, you are right, (laughs) right on. You have answered correctly. Do it and you will live. Go and do it. What must I do, he asked. Jesus said, go and do this. Up to this point in time, there's really, nothing really up for debate here. Jesus and this man are in complete agreement. But do you notice, he only really answered the question of what is written in the law. He hasn't yet really answered Jesus' question of how do you read it? The truth of love is that loving God means loving others completely. I'm gonna beg, borrow, and steal from Stephen's message this morning. For those of you who are here, you would have heard him say this. Hold up your two fingers. Go on, hold them up. There we go, there we go, all right. All right. Imagine there's a piece of string joining these two fingers, right? You… If one finger represents your love for God and one finger represents your love for others, you cannot love God and not love others. The one will pull on the other. You will either love God and love others (laughs) or you will not love others and you will not love God. That's what the expert in the law, it's what he saw, it's, what, it's what's always been there. And, and could it be any other way? Because really, how could you love God truly? If you think about what it means to love somebody, it means, it means to accept that person, to receive that person as they are with delight and with affection. So, if we're going to receive God as He is with delight and affection and have regard for His Word and for His ways to to accommodate our life into His life, what would that actually mean? Who is this God? See, many of us stop with a picture of God that's just, God is the boss, you know? He's the big fella upstairs, he's the head honcho. I hear Australian guys talk like this all the time, and and I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it, we're we're being relatable here, right? We're being relatable. God's the head. But there's so much more to God than being the boss. God's not just the boss. He's the creator. (laughs) he's He's not just the one with the most power. He's he's not just the one with the big stick. He's not just Thanos with the glove who can go snap and you're, you know, half of you are gone right now or all of you or none of you. It's not just that. God, God is the author and sustainer of life. As James would write, every good and perfect gift comes from above. There is nothing good in this life that did not have its origin in God. And that is the same God who sacrificed Himself to redeem and restore rebels. It's the same God who went chasing after people who rejected Him, who despised Him, who ignored Him, who refused to see Him for who He was. He's the God who runs after them if we're going to love that God and keep our hands on our hips and look at other people in need and say, you know what? Tough bickies. Have we really grasped who this God is? Those two must go together. That's the truth. Now, the trap... And I say, I say the trap not for Jesus. Yes, you could have said maybe he was trying to trap Jesus. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. I'm not gonna, uh, I don't want to put too much on the motives of, of this, this expert. He's trying to challenge him, yes. But, you know, maybe he's trying to challenge him in a good way. I, I, I don't know. No, the trap here is the trap that's common to all of us. Here's why. The nature of love is that it is costly, you can't love something without preparing to pay a cost. That's not love. If you are in a relationship that is being described as loving and, and there is no space for, for you to sacrifice or to pay a cost or to, or, or, or to accommodate in some way, watch out, you may be an abuser. If you're in a relationship where someone is telling you that they love you and they never pay a cost, they never accommodate, they never, they, they never sacrifice, they, they, they never go the distance, you may be being abused or at the very least taken advantage of. But the trap that the, that the expert in the law falls into here is he recognizes that love is costly and so he's, he's saying, you know, I I, I better love discriminately. There's only so much of me to go around. And in fact, not everyone's like me. There's people who might hate me. There's people who've, who've, who've decided that they're opposed to anything that I would stand for. Surely, if I only have this limited supply of love to give, I'm not going to give it to them. Don't I need to save it up? And for those of us who have become really worldly wise, we use love as a means for our own security, don't we? We give love because of what it gives back to us. I'm happy to offer myself, but only going to offer myself because of what I get in return. And you'll know you're in that kind of relationship when you can't give back what you normally give, and suddenly it doesn't feel like love anymore. Suddenly it feels like a contract that you've broken. But that's the trap this man falls himself into. Luke tells us his motive again. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus has just said, you're right, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. What did he want? He wanted to inherit eternal life. Now when we read this and, and he says he wanted to justify himself, some of us who've been reading a lot of Reformation theology can, can quickly jump to the perspective that, that well, This man refuses to accept any grace from God, and he is going to establish his own works righteousness. Mm. Eh, Probably a bit of a stretch. Why? Because he's already in. (laughs) He's already a Jew. He's already an expert in the law. He has the words of God. He's a participant in the covenant. He's allowed to worship at the temple. He's already in. So what does it mean that he's trying to justify himself? I think he's pressing for that assurance. He's, he's pushing for the proof. He wants to know where he's gonna hang his, his hat. He wants to be able to say, yep, I've done it. As we say around these parts, He wants to be able to tick the box. He wants to know, I've done what I needed to do, and I can leave it. Now, here's the problem with self-justification. Whether whether it's in a relational context or or whether it's in a religious context, the problem with self-justification is it's the first four letters of that word, (laughs) self. You are attempting, or I am attempting to... To ground myself, I'm the one that I'm most concerned about. And if you're most concerned about yourself at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to love God and you're not going to be able to love other people, point blank. And if you say, well, if I don't, if, if I don't worry about me, who's, who's, who's going to look after me? I would love to tell you the gospel. One of the beautiful, beautiful, liberating aspects of coming to know Jesus Christ is the, is the ability to stop worrying about yourself. Whew. How much time do we spend worrying about ourselves? How am I going to get through? What are they going to think of me? Where? How is this going to turn out? Am I going to be able to make it? What's going to happen? Self-justification, any attempt to self-justification is is almost, it can almost be a dishonest entrance into relationship. This man wants to know who his neighbor is, where the limit is. And here we see that self-justification, it it hides a prideful heart behind the mask of appeasing God. (laughs) Do you see this? He wants... It looks good from the outside. It looks like he's saying, I just want to do right by God. I just want to do what he wants me to do. But is that really the motive of his heart? The motive is that he just wants to be right. He wants to be okay. He wants to be secure. He wants to be sure in himself. And Jesus has just affirmed this command, and we, as he begins to tease it out, he's, he's ready to say, okay, well, who is, who is my neighbor? Which brings us to the fir- third thing, the test. The, the, the test of love is, is measured in by actions. Love is measured by actions. Full stop. It can be powered by sentiment, absolutely. It can be, it can be directed by, by intentions, sure, 100%. It can be spent in a number of different ways, but the ultimate measure of love is action. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The nation of Israel got into so much trouble, so much hot water, because they, they thought that God just wanted them to go through the motions. They thought as long as they turned up to church each week, or temple, <laughs> as long as they turned up to the temple, as long as the ritual sacrifice was going morning and evening, as, as long as that was happening, as long as they were able to celebrate the festivals and the Day of Atonement every year, well, then surely, surely we've done what we need to do, and we can spend the rest of the time doing whatever we want. And that's where God stepped in and he said, your actions, he says, you want to know the kind of fast that I like? Try treating your employees justly. Try supporting a fair wage. Try not oppressing the widows and orphans among you. God says, I'll count that as a fast. It's always been this way. Jesus shows this in the parable. The man asks, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus offers this parable. Now, I just want to sort of put a little little pin here for you. A parable is, is, is a made-up story that is meant to teach a spiritual reality. It doesn't have to be spiritual, but that's how Jesus uses them. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God, about discipleship, about all these realities through these scenarios that he crafts. Now, Jesus is going to give what amounts to an example story here. He's gonna give one of the characters in the story, is gonna be an example, and it's why he finishes by saying, go and do likewise. You're supposed to, supposed to jump into the world of the parable, find out who the example is and imitate that example. But the advantage of parables is you can construct a narrative, you can construct a world that's very rich and has multiple layers. And so it becomes more than just simply go do this. And that's what I hope that we'll discover as we look into this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's important. They're leaving Jerusalem. So as the priest and Levite who are about to come by, they've finished their work in the temple, okay? That'll be important. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, I'm not great at conversions, but it's probably a little under 30 kilometers, and in that 30-kilometer journey, there's a descent of a 1,000 meters, so a fairly steep descent in a short period of time, in a, in a short distance, and it's also, and I haven't been there, but scholars and even ancient writers describe this. At the time Jesus is giving this parable, the The road was dangerous. It was windy. It was steep. You were surrounded by by rocks and and, and caves and caverns, and and so it was very easy for bandits to, to go on the highway. People knew this. You probably have certain roads that you don't travel at night. That was their understanding. Now, Jesus says a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Who is he? Jesus leaves him nondescript. Isn't that fascinating? We don't know if he was a Jew. You could say probably. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know why he was in Jerusalem. It's completely left out. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away. But sorry, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, that's actually a literal translation. The word is half dead. <laughs> he was almost dead. So here's a man who is unidentifiable by any other means than he's a human being. The expert asked Jesus the question Who's my neighbor? Jesus starts by a st- giving a story about a human being in need, not a relative, not a coworker, not a religious person or non-religious person, not, not, not from your ethnicity or not your ethnicity. We don't know his skin color. We don't know anything. He's a human being in need. A priest happened to be going down the same road. It, it, it sort of has that feel of, hey, good news. We've started with a sad story, but this is a comedy. It's gonna be good news. A man happened to be going down the same road. Excuse me, a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This begins a pattern of he was going, he saw, and he passed by the other side. This man is a priest. Now, a lot of people have over the years read into the priest's decision to avoid the person on the side of the road as a matter of ritual purity. They say, well, he, he looked half dead. He was, likely, he was likely not, you know, if he was dead, he's, he's not clean. Priests aren't allowed to touch corpses. The priest didn't want to be unclean. You see, there's a very religious reason for this. Not when you look closely. First of all, he's leaving Jerusalem His priestly work is done. Secondly, I hadn't even realized this till this week. Priests in the law were obligated, if they came upon an exposed corpse and they didn't know whose it was or who it belonged to, they they were obligated to deal with it. So, he's not avoiding the man out of ritual purity, no, in fact, he's, he's denying the command of God. The way Jesus sets up this story with a priest, a Levite, it was a common way of telling a story in those days, but the third person in the story would normally be just uh, your everyday Israelite. So, be a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. Here we start with a priest. The priest is someone whose job is to mediate God to the people and represent the people to God. The priest is the one who would perform the sacrifices. The priest is the one who would facilitate your worship. And this man, who represent, his job is to represent God, avoids him. Notice we're not told why. All we're told is that he doesn't. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed by on the other side. Now who was a Levite? A Levite was a a, a larger sort of group of people priests were a subset of the Levites. The Levites were, the, were a larger group. They were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the tribe that God had claimed for His own as His own special possession. You'll recall when when, when God redeemed the people out of Egypt, and you remember, you know, Pharaoh, maybe you've seen the 10 Commandments movie, and and, and and they put the blood on the door, and they have the Passover, and all the firstborn in Egypt die. Well, when they get into the wilderness, God, God said, He said, Every firstborn that night I took. I allowed yours to live, but they now belong to me. But God said, rather than taking every firstborn from every family of every tribe, just give me this tribe, the tribe of Levi. They're mine, and I will be their portion. They didn't have a a boundary, a a set of land. they were allowed to farm in certain, you know, in certain cities, they were allowed to, to go to certain places, but they didn't have a, a state or a territory to call their own as a tribe because the Lord was their portion. So here you have a priest whose job you could say is to represent God to the people, and now you have a Levite whose whole identity is bound up in what God has given him. He's been told that, that, that he is an heir, he's inherited, his, his portion is God himself. That's what it meant to be a Levite. This person who's received so much from God passes by on the other side. But a Samaritan, <laughs> now, here's the first curveball, because normally they'd be expecting to say, but an Israelite. But here it's a Samaritan. You say, who are the Samaritans? You can read books on it. Samaritans were this this, uh, religious ethnic group that emerged after, uh, in Jesus' day, after the uh, exiles had been gone. And the very sort of the fledgling members of, of Israel who were left in the Promised Land, the ones that the conquering powers didn't want, they started to intermarry with other peoples and they sort of were viewed by the Jews as kind of half breeds, if you will. They were an impure race. There was animosity between Samaritans and Jews and Samaritans had a different view of worship. Their theology said that you didn't worship God in Jerusalem. So here's a guy from a race that nobody likes with bad theology who doesn't have an ethnic claim to the promises of God. As he traveled, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, look what he does. He took pity on him. Literally, it means his he was... Uh, it's 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 a it's a bowel language, and I'm trying not to be. A, I'm trying not to be. Uh, it, it, it's that feeling in your gut. It's it's. He was moved with compassion. Only twice before in Luke's gospel has this this phrase been used to to have pity or to have compassion. The first is in Zechariah's song, chapter one, verse seventy-two, when when he's rejoicing that God has finally sent His Messiah. He says, God has had compassion on his people. The second time, and perhaps more closely related, is in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is going along, and he happens to be walking by a funeral procession, and he sees a widow who's lost her son, and he is moved with compassion. Here, the Samaritan, he had he had compassion on him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Some say that because he has oil and wine, maybe he's a traveling merchant. Perhaps. Uh, Also the fact that he had a donkey. He then puts the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Notice the response is immediate. Notice the response is 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 holistic. He he doesn't just He doesn't just say, there, there, I'll call an ambulance. (laughs) He doesn't say, here's a bit of bandages. Now, I'm going to leave you to the next guy. It's a holistic treatment here at his own cost, not just a financial cost, but at the cost of his own comfort. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Now, a denarii was a day's wage, so he gives two days' wages. Now, the issue, though, was not everybody earned a day's wage. If you were a poor person, you would earn a twelfth of a denarii in a day. If you were like a slave laborer, a denarii should last you almost a fortnight. And if that's sort of the going rate right here, he effectively leaves them with money for, for a month, Almost. But not just that, he says, look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He leaves the innkeeper with an open tab. A lot of us will say, look, I'll give you cash, give you cash. But I'm not going to put myself in a vulnerable financial position. I'm not going to give you an open tab. Now, I'm not saying be foolish. But here, look at the extravagance with which he shows his mercy. And this is a Samaritan. And now, Jesus brings the second twist into the story. The first twist was the Samaritan. Here's the second twist. It's in the question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? That's a very interesting question. We often read this story and we say, oh, loving your neighbor means loving the man in the ditch, loving the man on the side of the road, loving the destitute, loving those who 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 have nothing. That was the man's question, who is my neighbor? And then we read the story and we say, oh, it's it's, it's the one in the ditch. But when Jesus turns it back to him, he says, who was a neighbor to the man in the ditch? What's Jesus doing? If you had to ask answer that question given the three characters in the story, who was a neighbor? Raise your hand if you think it's the priest. The Levite the Samaritan, good. The rest of you are asleep. I'm sorry. Have a, good, have a good nap. The Samaritan, that is the answer to his question. Who is my neighbor? And when Jesus flips it around, he puts him in a position where he has to say, it's the Samaritan. Jesus is working on two levels here. This is, this is fascinating, to me anyway. Fascinating, because on the one hand, he's just demonstrated what, what love looks like tangibly. What does it mean to love your neighbor? The Samaritan is an example. He shows, here is just a human being, and this is what it looks like to love. It, it comes immediately, it's, it's a holistic care, it's tangible, it's practical, it comes at a cost. That's what love looks like. We see the example. But then, in the way Jesus reframes the question, he forces the man to answer his own question by saying his neighbor is the Samaritan. You see? Can he bring himself to say it? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, we don't wanna overread the text. We're not told that Jesus doesn't seem to be riled by this response, Jesus seems to say, go ahead. And we know the expert in the law, he's learning. He's learning and he gets it. But we would be foolish to ignore, we would be foolish to ignore how Jesus turned the tables and how, as one commentator put it, he said, Jesus here in this parable, he is pushing the boundaries of loving your neighbor into the realm of loving your enemies. You see that? So, who is his neighbor? Anyone in need. And anyone he may hate. The test of love is this genuine love reflects God's character and it's costly compassion for everyone. Love costs something. And the Samaritan was willing to pay that cost. And in this, it reflects the heart of God. Jesus removes the limits. There, there, there's no other category. If you're gonna love God, you need to love people. In fact, it's your love for people who will that will reflect how well you know God. Now, please, take this truth. Let it, let it sit with you. Mull over it. I borrowed this slide from Chris. I'm not trying to quote myself, <laughs> but I liked the question, <laughs> all right? So please, please forgive uh, poor slide preparation. But Chris wrote the question down, and I liked it again. Uh, do you consider yourself observers of, passive observers of God's kingdom or active participants in it? Active participants in the kingdom of God will love others. Full stop. The man was trying to work out how far the love had to go. And Jesus said, it's, it's without limit. The only real distinguishing factor, we don't know why the priest and the Levite didn't show it. It's just that they didn't. If you read this passage carefully time and time again, you'll notice this little two-letter word that just keeps popping up do what must i do to inherit eternal life jesus go and do likewise in fact when the man answers when the expert answers the question who was the one who was the neighbor it's the one who not just had mercy on him but literally the phrase is who did mercy with him to do mercy and jesus said now you go do the worst thing you can do today is to leave here the same as you came in. The worst thing you can do today is to, is, is to be like this man and, and jump into the pool or the bathtub of self-justification and think, I'm just going to marinate in here for a while. I just need to sort of relax. I need to just sort of stew in, in my own soothing of my own conscience. No. No, to be a disciple means to be on the way, but if you're on the way, we need to love as we go. And we need to realize it might mean that our plans have to change. And so maybe for some of us, the first thing we need to acknowledge is being a disciple is going to cost me time because loving like this and showing mercy like this doesn't fit neatly in the diary You can't say, well, I got a 15-minute window on a Thursday between 2.45 and 3 p.m. God, I'm going to give you that as my, my, my compassionate mercy time, and hopefully I see someone who needs help with their flat tire. No. It starts by creating margin. This means, brothers and sisters, we're going to have to be intentional about breaking the cycle of busyness. And I say it to myself as much as I say it to you. So here's a little little thing. The next time you feel yourself getting really, really frustrated because you've just been interrupted by something, pause for a moment and ask yourself, has God put this situation in my path right now for me to show mercy? Because I could tell you, there's no meeting, there's no email, there's no sermon, there's no nothing more important than being able to reflect the love of God to another human being. If you have an opportunity to do that, take it. Take it. I'll invite the band up now. We'll stop there. You've been very gracious with me in my time. Let's pray. Father, would you encourage us to have open eyes to see those around us who are in need. Help us not to discriminate, Lord. Lord, we acknowledge that our society is not wired to live like this. So Lord, help us to be brave. Help us to endure when it costs us to love like you love. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Thanks.